The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Support for this show comes from Sivananda Ashram Yoga Retreat Bahamas, where yoga is more than a class, it's a way of life. With a mission to promote peace in the world, we invite you to immerse in a yogic lifestyle. Get started at sivanandabahamas.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, George Annis, is a bioethicist, health lawyer, and the William Fairfield Warren Distinguished Professor at Boston University. He's also chair of the Department of Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at BU School of Public Health, and professor in the university schools of medicine and law. Dr. Annis co-authored with Dr. Sherman Elias, Genomic Messages, How the Evolving Science of Genetics Affects Our Health, Families, and Future. A review of the book appeared in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health. Dr. Annis, welcome to Essential Conversations. Happy to be with you, Rabbi. Let's start with the basics. Give us a definition of what genomic medicine is. Well, genomic medicine is uh, just a fancy term for considering all of the genes in a human makeup rather than just one gene at a time. I mean, historically, uh, we just called it genetics or genetic medicine. And uh, when we just looked at or could look at only one, one particular gene, but with the Human Genome Project and the billions of dollars the federal government put into sequencing our entire genome, which is composed of three billion base pairs, we have now entered the era of trying to figure out what these three billion uh, base pairs, these 22, 23,000 genes, mean and how they interact with each other. We, we now are not so simplistic to think that one gene only does one thing. Now we know that. It's much more complicated than that. And we don't have the answers yet, but we know how to ask the questions. So do you think that looking at all of the genes or, you know, clusters of genes, I don't know how you'd actually refer to them, but okay. looking at them as interacting parts, do you think that's going to change the way we sort of take in medicine and broken it up into all these subspecialties? And this is going to suggest, no, we need a more holistic approach. Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, the, the president, as you know, has got started this at the State of the Union. He said he wants to have a new effort in what he calls precision medicine. And the idea behind precision medicine, it wasn't President Obama's idea, it came from the National Institutes of Health, is that the more we know about the tiniest parts that make up our body, the better off we'll be able to cure diseases and diagnose diseases. Between you and me, that remains to be seen. You know, the critique that looking at smaller and smaller parts is very, very uh, reductionistic, that we're not our parts, we're our whole. And that may actually 
I don't want to say make medicine worse, but it could. It certainly make it a lot more expensive, and it may or may not have a payoff because, uh, as you implied with that question, we're not just parts. We're whole human beings, and uh, we don't live on the molecular level. We live on, a, on the whole body level, and I think it's important that our medicine see us as whole-bodied humans, not as composite parts. So when we think of ourselves as whole-body humans rather than composite parts, is there a sense that there's no way to know exactly what's going on? I mean, you know, turning off one gene may not actually do what you think it does. It could have ramifications beyond what we think at the moment. Well, right now, with the exception of uh, the very few genes that actually determine specific illnesses, like the Huntington's gene, for example, or cystic fibrosis gene, that's definitely true, that it's very complicated and we don't understand it. But the thought is we don't understand it just because we don't know enough, and that new applications of computer science, big data, giant banks of DNA from millions of people, that absolutely is what... uh, the president wants to see, that's his project, that a million Americans uh, donate their DNA and their medical records and their family histories to this giant data bank. And then the theory is if we put all this information together, and we have to put it together with environmental data as well, that will learn something that will help us diagnose diseases. But you're skeptical. Well, I think any good scientist is skeptical. You know, we scientists say, prove it, you know, demonstrate it. I think it's a hypothesis that's worth exploring, but we've been disappointed before. Remember, the, the war on cancer started, was started with President Nixon, and uh, we were going to cure cancer in, in 10 years or 20 years, and here it is 50 years later. There's a lot of ads on television. They talk about if you have cancer, this is the place to go because they do some kind of DNA exploration of your cancer and they figure out exactly what's going on with you and it's only you because of your unique genetic makeup and you have the best chance of beating your cancer because we're going to, you know, we take a look at that. It sounds in the commercial, you know, sort of, oh, this is definite. We've already figured this out. But what I'm hearing is, no, this is still hypothetical and that now I'm thinking a lot of what is passing as settled medicine is still actually marketing. A lot of medicine is marketing. That's definitely true. On the other hand, it is also true that cancer is probably the fastest moving and most likely area of genomics to have payoffs. And that's not because we can figure out what your DNA looks like. It's because we try to figure out what your tumor's DNA looks like, which is different than your DNA. And the theory is, and in some cases it's proven that it can work in some cancers, that if we know the genome of your tumor, we can find a weakness in that specific tumor, a specific weakness, and attack it there. Instead of as, as we've been doing with cancer, you know, forever, you know, giving you chemotherapy that attacks your entire body or right. a radiation treatment that attacks a bigger area than just your tumor. So the theory in, in cancer is, is actually right. The payoff seems likely. It's not just going to be genomics. It's going to be genomics with immunotherapy, for example, is, a, is the hottest area now. But, but of course, anytime you have a hospital or a, a, on television telling you something, that is advertising. <laughs> There's no question right. about right. that. And you have to be a little skeptical. On the other hand, 
if you're dying, uh, your choices are limited. Yeah, and lots of us don't have the luxury of being skeptical. We're sort of grasping at straws, and Absolutely there's a straw, right. I'll, I'll take it. it Americans is, don't want to say no. Is there anything you can do? There's a theory that's going around now that's saying that the first person to live to be 150 years old is actually alive today as a baby, probably. <laughs> so are you optimistic that that's what's happening when we look at all this work with genetics? Well, the real question for me is, and I ask you, is, is that the goal? <laughs> I mean, is our goal just to live as long as we can, to live to be 150? And even when we're young, it seems like a silly goal. No one wants to live to be old if you're just getting older and older, right? And so they say, oh, no, well, we want you to live to be 150, but in a 15-year-old's body, well, that's not happening. You want to spend the last 50 years in a nursing home. Let me put it Yes, exactly. I don't know. I mean, you have to talk that one out, living to be 150. Now, some of the people uh, in the last chapter of the book, we speculate, and a lot of people are talking about the singularity and right. when, when humans are, are uh, humans and machines are going to merge, and when uh, and then then you'll be able to live to be functionally immortal. But of course, you'll be a functionally immortal as a machine or as a particle. Then you obviously won't be human anymore. You'll be post-human, as we call yeah, it. The, yeah, transhuman, post-human. Transhuman, right, post-human. Exactly. And again, the question, is that the goal? For some people, that actually is the goal. Their, their goal really is immortality, or as close as they can get to it. Not just 150 years, but... Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, years. that's not in the cars anytime soon, I'm assuming. <laughs> the, the singularity was supposed to be within... The next 50 years or something. Yeah, 2040 but, is the predicted uh, year. I don't know how you base that. But yeah, so <laughs> well, it's coming it, right up, though, 25 yeah. years. Any, any moment now, any moment yeah. now. So before that happens, <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. In, in your book, you're actually right. I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing, but you say sure. that genomic medicine will bring unwelcome changes in the way people interact with their health care providers. What do you have in mind when you say unwelcome changes? Well, some of these unwelcome changes are already there with computerized medical records. I mean, I think electronic medical records are a good thing in general because uh, they have the potential to be, you know, to be accessed more quickly and even to be more accurate. But on the other hand, if you've been to your doctor recently, and people tell me that their doctor spends more time staring at the computer screen and typing things in than they do talking to you, that it makes it much more impersonal, even though it makes your medical record uh, much better. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Uh, genomics can, can actually multiply that because uh, your genome is so complicated that it's going to take up most of the space in your electronic medical record, and your physician could spend more time querying your genome than they do querying you. And that's what I mean by that. It's, it's The interaction could be worse, and it could be much more depersonalized. So, I, I mean, I can see the effect of that uh, psychologically, and that uh, you know, maybe that you'd have to work in teams, someone who, who can deal with you as a person, you know, psychologically deal with you as a person, and someone who says, well, your your personality is simply the byproduct of this 
mechanism that's happening. So someone else is, look, I don't care who you are personally. I just care about the mechanism to keep it as healthy as possible. To what extent does the genomic way of looking at a human being look at the person less as a personality and more as a phenomenal happening, just a mechanism? No, I think that's right. I mean, that's a tendency to reduce everything to small particles until, until you put those things together and you and you got something, right? But your essence is really your particles. And this is kind of the irony of the term personalized medicine, which is another word for genomic medicine, and now the president wants to use the word precision medicine. But personalized medicine was a uh, almost a marketing word designed to kind of counteract this idea that we're going to treat you impersonally. We're just going to look at your genome. No, no. We are just going to look at your genome, but it's just your genome. There's no other <laughs> genome quite like yours, so so it's personalized. That's how it's We're, personalized. That's, that's exactly. It's true yeah. on the surface. It's true. There is no other genome just like yours, unless you have an identical twin. But on the other hand, you know, you used the word essence a moment ago. You know, in my mind, that slips back to where my comfort zone is more in the philosophical area. Sure. But you know, in the existential philosophy, Sartre has this statement: existence precedes essence. I mean, first we have to be this machine. First we have to exist, you know, through this genetic uh, makeup and the DNA and all that. And then we get this personality that we pretend is our essence, but our essence is actually material. Now, I know not everyone accepts that, and I don't want to have a debate with the audience about it, but the work that you're doing, working with the, at the genetic level, does suggest that existence is the primary thing. To what extent do you think a person's genetic makeup is their fate? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, we have this tendency to use DNA and genetic metaphorically. It's in our DNA. It's in your DNA. I even used uh, 25 years ago this metaphor called the future diary, that you think of your DNA as your future diary. Now, I said it was probabilistic and in codes. So. But many people do look at DNA as your fate. That's absolutely right. And it's, I think, the wrong way to look at it. It's a powerful part. It can give you some ideas about what things might happen to you. And, you know, in a few genes, it could actually tell you what things, if you live long enough, are going to happen to you. But environment determines at least as much as your genome and maybe even more. And uh, it's the interaction with the environment and the genes and your microbiome, the little things that live inside of you, that are going to determine your health altogether. And so it's wrong to think of your future just as a genetically determined. But it's easy to do that. I mean, it's almost natural to do that, right? Right. So what are we looking at? Probabilities more than predictions? Yeah, we definitely look at probabilities. It's true about almost everything in life, right? There's very few things that are 100%. So what's your sense of women who, let's say, have breast cancer in one breast and then decide to have both breasts removed because the probability or just have the gene that suggests breast cancer and so as, as a preventative, they remove their, their breasts? You know, I think that, uh, that that movement is not a good one, hopefully. I mean, I, I just remember being at a conference of medical oncologists uh, 25 years ago when this was, was first starting to do that, one of the... The surgeon said, well, well, hold on a second, let me get this straight, that if I have breast cancer, you're going to recommend a lumpectomy. But if I don't have breast cancer, you're going to do a radical mastectomy. And he said he didn't think that made sense. I don't think that makes sense either. But that's one of the options that surgeons give women who have a gene that greatly increases their risk of getting breast cancer. It doesn't mean they're getting, going to have breast cancer, and it certainly doesn't mean that they have breast cancer because they don't. But that really encapsulates kind of the dilemma 
that genetics gives you, especially in America, where we don't like to live with uncertainty. Say, well, if, if I might get breast cancer, can you do something that, that will prevent me from getting it? And the other thing we can do is, is remove the organ that might become cancerous in the future. It may never. So do you recommend that people get genetically screened to see what their probabilities are for different diseases? I think it depends on your family history. Now, this okay. is one thing we didn't talk about. Most of the time right now, you can learn as much, sometimes more, about your likely health future by understanding your family history. So, for example, even physicians who are, are strongly in favor of screening for the for so-called the breast cancer gene, the BRCA1 and BRCA2, would not recommend that for any woman who didn't have at least two or sometimes three close relatives that had ovarian cancer or breast cancer. Family history matters a lot, and, and most of us know that. Most of us kind of think that we're going to live our lives close to how our, if we're males like our father did or like our mother did, you know, if we were females. And mostly that's true. Well, that's good to know. My dad passed away recently, but he was 89. Yeah, that's and, yeah, you're a good chance. <laughs> and golfing right up to the end, so... That's great. As long as you're not a smoker. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, I'm not a smoker, and sadly, I'm not a golfer either, so who knows what will happen to me. Let me read one section of the book, and we're coming up close to the end here. Okay. And I am quoting now. It says, To the extent that health insurance companies, the government, and even your employers think that genomic can save them money, they are likely to pressure you to use the new genomics. Also, to the extent that private corporations believe they can make money by getting you to use the new genomics, you will be subjected to commercials every bit as pervasive as current prescription drug advertising on TV. So that, that's the quote. Is there any way to prevent this? How do you defend yourself against marketers telling us that X, Y, and Z, and we're going, oh, my God, I have to do this right away. I have to buy this new genetic treatment. I mean, is there any way you see avoiding this, or is this our fate? The only good news about that is most people don't believe anything they see in <laughs> advertising. I mean, obviously, advertising sells, so some people do, but most of us are totally inured to this, and, and we realize that even, you know, that's the cost of, of getting on the Internet now or watching television. Yes, the idea is to always ask the question, how do they know this? What's the proof behind this if you can't, or if you can't ignore it? That makes sense, I mean, and it's true that most of us ignore this kind of thing, but Thanks because we're too, busy, we're too busy believing in UFOs and, and other things. That's, that's my singularity and living to be 150. That's yeah, right. my plan is before I reach 150, I will be taken to off, off planet, probed. They'll fix my genetic makeup and teach me how to golf. So that, that's really, that's my hope in life. So let me ask you one last question. And this is just a practical thing. And it may be too practical to even answer. But if you were to recommend one thing that people can do regarding this emerging science, besides buying your book, what would that be? <laughs> Two things. <laughs> Two things. All right. Buy your book and... and be acquainted with your family history. I think that's an important thing to know. Know your family history. Know the major diseases that each of your close relatives had. Because okay, that's so the most helpful to... information you can give to your physicians, and that's the most helpful information that you can use to think about your future. So let me just pick up one thing. Close relatives. So how far back does a person need to know? What's, well, what's grandparents. Grandparents is far enough. Very good. Well, I think that's in addition to buying the book. That's, <laughs> what, that's what people ought to do. My guest today was Dr. George Annis. His book, co-authored with Dr. Sherman Elias, Genomic Messages, How the Evolving Science of Genetics Affects Our Health, Families, and Future, was reviewed in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health. Dr. Annis, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Great. Well, I enjoyed talking to you. Today's interview was sponsored by the Shivananda Ashram Yoga Retreat Bahamas, where yoga is more than a class. 
It's a way of life. With a mission to promote peace in the world, the good people at Shivananda Ashram invite you to immerse in a yogic lifestyle. Get started at shivanandabahamas.org. And let me just add a personal note. I've taught at the ashram a couple of times, and I promise you this is a wonderful place to practice and to learn. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats, which work on any tablet or smartphone, and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.